Welcome on into the Superintendent Radio Network and episode 24 of Greens with Envy. I'm Matt Lowell, managing editor of Golf Course Industry Magazine, joined as always by the magazine's editor in chief, Guy Cipriano. This is the podcast where Guy and I talk about where we've been, who we've seen, who we've talked with, what we've learned, on and on. And this episode is all about courses that are great examples of local small businesses. But first, a few quick notes. I'll be hosting the 10th annual GCI Tweet Up. Tag it online, hashtag GCI Tweet Up 21 and the 2021 Super Social Media Awards. Those at 3 p.m. Eastern on Wednesday, March 31st. Nominations are closed and we know who's winning, but we're not going to tell you just yet. Check out daily announcements on golfcourseindustry.com starting March 15th. And also visit at Aquatrolls on Twitter. They are the wonderful sponsor of the event, and they've been there every step of the way, too. I was about to say thanks to Aquatrolls, which has sponsored the tweet-up since 2012. Also, our new Turf Heads Guide to Grilling is up and running. Industry professionals everywhere can share their glamour shots of food on a grill or a serving plate, share their cooking videos, share their team bonding shots, share their recipes, share their tips. Just use the Turf Heads Grilling hashtag and tag at GCI Magazine. And at Solutions, the number four, Turf. Solutions for Turf. Materials will be collected throughout the year, printed in a year-end insert in our December Turf Heads Takeover issue. Industry professionals whose materials are selected for that insert will be eligible to win a team cookout in 2022. AquaAid Solutions, Solutions for Turf on Twitter, is our partner for this delicious diversion cake grilling. Now, that's all we have for Upfront promotional stuff guy the format you printed for this episode greens with envy 24 says we're starting with the role of public golf that seems important since nearly three quarters of all u.s courses are either municipal or daily fee you want to start with public golf numbers it's where most people play the game yeah and we discussed this a bit on our beyond the page for january with our state of the industry report but this podcast is even going to be more hyper-local because Greens with Envy is based on the courses we are visiting or writing about. And in this case, I visited a golf course that's a small business. And Matt just wrote an incredible cover story that he finished today about a golf course that's a small business. And we'll get into those a little bit later. But one of the big misconceptions about golf, and it might even be the biggest misconception about golf amongst people who don't play it, or even people in the industry don't quite understand this. Everybody thinks of the high-profile private clubs or resort golf courses when they think of the golf market, and Mm -hmm. that's certainly not the case. So there are 14,200 approximately golf facilities in the United States, and 74% of those are open to the public. And then of those that are open to the public, the average public green fee is, you want to take a guess at this? I will say 30, well, what time of day, what time of week? Just the average average? Average average. $34. Very close. $36. So I Almost said 36 If you're playing 18 holes, that's it's $2 a hole. There yeah. aren't many things you can do with discretionary income that really are that affordable. Now, it's it depends what part of the country you're in, right? If you're in the, the New York City metropolitan area or, or some parts of California, maybe public golf isn't that affordable. But where we live in Northeast Ohio, it truly is one of the most affordable discretionary income activities but also public golf played a huge role in golf's 2020 story so there were there are now 24.8 million golfers in the united states according to the national golf foundation that's Hmm. 500,000 more than there were last year so golf lost a lot of people every year that that happens but the net increase was 500,000 golfers after 2020 and the bulk of that is at the public level and also uh there were 502 million rounds of golf played last year, according to the National Golf Foundation and Golf Data, Data Tech. So that's 20.2 rounds per golfer. Matt, how many rounds did you play? Uh, fewer than you. Total rounds, do rounds of nine count as a full round, or is that a half a round? Half a round. Uh, probably eight. Matt's a busy person. We've gone over this <laughs> on the podcast. <laughs> I'm not a busy person, so... But 20.2 rounds, think about that. that that's a lot of golf. You it know, is of course, a lot of we golf. We live in a cool, cool weather market, Cleveland, Ohio. So really the only 
time we can play is from mid-March to about mid-November. So that's a lot less time than in the warm weather markets. But some some of this is really skewed, right? You might have the the person that plays one or two rounds per year, you know, at a company outing or or with their friends or or family outing, and then you may have the the person that plays three hundred and fifty rounds a year. Sure, my uncle, who may be on this podcast coming up for a special edition of Off the Course, uh, plays three or four times a week when he is in Southern California. So we're talking about all these public golf courses and all these public rounds, when you're going to play at these places, who are you patronizing? Well, a lot of times you would be patronizing the city where you are playing if you're at a municipal. But if you're not at a municipal, what are you patronizing? I would say a small business. Oh, the theme of this episode. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah, we're going to be talking about small businesses on this episode. And I would say that 2020... There was a lot more awareness, would you say, Matt, race for small businesses in general because of the, the plight many of them experienced following the initial outbreak of COVID-19 in the United States? There was a lot of support for local businesses. And I feel like at this point, people are fatigued and people have gone back to their pre-pandemic patterns of going to chain restaurants and chain stores. But I feel like there is a little more attention placed on those surviving uh, bars and Restaurants. I know we try to get to our favorite local spots a few times a month, uh, whether that's for pie or a burger or macaroni and cheese for the four-year-old. Think of how much everything's changed since last March. We're recording this on March mm-hmm. 1st, 2021. Think of everything that's changed in the last 12 months. And I remember writing a column about this for our May issue last year just called Support Local Golf Courses because mm-hmm. – when everything first happened with COVID-19, my initial reaction was, if any segment of the industry is going to feel the brunt of, of this, it's those family-owned public golf courses, especially in states that had heavy restrictions. And I know that mm-hmm. a lot of golf courses were involved in the PPP program, and they're still involved in the PPP program. Right. And you were just really worried what was going to happen to some of these courses that you know were maybe single owner and had eight to ten employees, and you know, especially in cool weather markets, and where they couldn't bring in year-round revenue, and they couldn't have the events, and they couldn't have the outings that they normally did. And uh, I wrote this column saying, if you worked in the golf industry, you know, go support. Remember last spring, everybody was like, go support your local restaurant, go support your local car wash, whatever whatever the business is, support your local flower right. shop. Anything, we, anything that's not a big national change. We sure. had a lot of those. In, basically, that's the lifeblood of the golf industry mm-hmm. are those type of facilities. And you know, fortunately, in most cases, 2020 worked out much better than anybody could have anticipated well, last March it, for, for the golf market. Not, oh, for sure. We're not talking about it, but a lot of these golf courses that we really thought were going to be in peril – and maybe not even be in existence at the end of the year were the ones that had the nicest years and are ending this year with a lot of momentum, a lot of goodwill in the community because they pl- provided such a valuable service and such a valuable recreational and such a valuable mental and physical health opportunity for their customers during a, a very difficult time for a lot of the customers of these golf courses. And uh, you and I have gotten to experience some of those. You you had to do yours via phone. I, I got to go to one re- recently, and very fascinating to hear their stories and what they go through. And uh, us at Golf Course Industry, I think over the last year, we've even become more aware of the plight that the small businesses in, in the golf industry face. And you could say even the private clubs are small businesses because mm-hmm. they have less than 500 employees. It was 500 employees or less to qualify for PPP protections. But you know, we're really going to focus on on the public ones, the ones that didn't have the initiation fees or the, the guaranteed money and dues coming in, the ones that had their, their, their events eliminated last year and had a lot of their food and beverage revenue eliminated. But they were the ones that really, like I said, persevered and just provided this tremendous value to their, their communities. And it, it's sort of inspiring to see how they handled the pandemic and how they got creative and how they were able to keep the doors open. And it's just such a interesting way to get to the point where a lot of them are feeling much more confident now than they were 
when 2020 started before the pandemic. And they will be confident for at least another few months until everything starts to open back up again, movie theaters and sporting events for the most part here in Ohio. Uh, indoor sporting events are allowed to go to 25% capacity and outdoor to 30%, which I don't think I'm going to be going into a basketball arena anytime soon. Golf course, sure. Baseball stadium, hmm, I don't know. Um, and a lot of the golf we play, yeah, we play a lot up here, Matt, at the Cleveland Metro Parks courses, mm-hmm. which are which is a fabulous municipal system. But we have, you know, within our office, probably six, seven dozen that are small, family owned, or single mm-hmm. owner, or maybe an owner that owns a few golf courses, or these small businesses that we're talking about. Yep, and uh, I still live about four miles from one of those Metro Parks courses, but uh, within. By the time we record Greens with NV26, I think uh, I'll be on the other side of Cleveland within about three miles of another small business, uh, Highland Park Golf Course, which was most famous for uh, being the home course of the late great ornery Charlie Sifford. Yeah, and he was also the uh, head pro at uh, Sleepy Hollow, yeah, which is a Cleveland Metro Parks course for more than a decade, and he certainly left his mark on Northeast Ohio golf with all the people that he interacted with, and Highland Park actually at one point hosted the um, the Cleveland Open on the PGA Tour. I believe it did it for two years in the 1960s. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. Before we get to your next bullet point, which I love because you call it the Cheers of Golf, and I love Cheers, one of my favorite television shows, I just so happened in my reporting for the story I finished for the March issue, I just so happened to look through the NGFs, the National Golf Foundation's 2020 Golf Facilities Report, and I was curious what states had the highest percentage of public facilities. So of all its facilities, all its golf facilities, what states had the highest percentage of those that are public? There's one state, and we'll go through the top 10 real quick, there's one state where every single golf facility in that state is public, and it is... Alaska. It is. Alaska, 21 for 21. The rest of the top 10, there's a few more that are over 90. North Dakota and South Dakota, forever linked. Uh, I mean, really, we look at them as as one state with a state line between them. North- I'm sure our North and South Dakota listeners are <laughs> probably going to get mad that you said that. We plead ignorance on this. I'm sure there's a big difference between one Dakota and the other. You've probably been there on your minor league baseball tour. I've never been to the Dakotas. Wow. Those two, are two of the four states I've never been to. They're two of the to. eight states I've never been to. <laughs> so North Dakota, 93.2%. South Dakota, 92.9% of all its golf facilities are public. Maine at 92.5%. Minnesota at 90.8%. And then 6 through 10, all between 85 and 89%. Wisconsin, 88.9% of all its golf facilities are public. Iowa, 86.8%. Michigan, 86.2%. Nebraska, 86.1%. And Vermont, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, 85.9%. And one interesting thing that you pointed out when I ran down that list, Guy, Alaska, North Dakota, South Dakota, Maine, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa, Michigan, Nebraska, Vermont. And you pointed it out very quickly. What are those states have in common it gets cold gets very cold and it gets very tough to have year-round memberships so you're a lot more reliant on daily fee players yeah it's tough to convince somebody to pay dues for 12 months when they can't even use the number one amenity for a a third of that time yep the national average by the way 73.7 percent that again according to the national golf foundation's 2020 golf facilities Report. All right. The cheers of golf. Sometimes you want a golf where everybody knows your name. Okay. We're going to cross promote one of our other podcasts here to get to this concept. I host a series called Tartan Talks. It is a monthly conversation with an American Society of Golf Course Architects member. Hopefully, if you're listening to this podcast, you've checked that podcast out. If you haven't listened to that podcast, go check it out. Our last two guests, so the one with Robert McNeil, we just posted. Mm-hmm. In late February, and I just recorded our next one with Bruce Matthews that will drop later here in March. But Robert McNeil owns a nine-hole golf course in Rhode Island. So in addition to designing golf courses, he owns one with his wife. It's called King's Crossing. And I asked him to describe it on the podcast, and basically it was a club that has over a 1,000 
members, public huh. course, thousand people have a membership in it where they, they get an annual pass. And he really described it as a course for everybody. And he called it, he goes, we're like the cheers of golf. And even me, who we've well-documented on this podcast, I think we did in our, our last ep episode about golfing celebrities, hmm. I'm a pop culture idiot. Even I, I got that one. Even I watched that TV show growing up. And then when I was speaking to Bruce Matthews for, for the next episode of Tartan Talks, like I said, it's going to drop later here in March, he grew up in a family of people that worked in the golf business. His grandfather was a golf course architect, Bruce Sr., and his uncle Jerry is a golf course architect, but everyone else in the family worked in golf basically in some capacity. And his family owned Grand Haven in Michigan. And he mm. was describing the course that his family operated and called it the Cheers of Golf. So two straight tartan talks. We're starting, we're talking about small businesses here. And I'm guessing before Cheers became a TV show, that was probably a bar operated as a as a small business. Well, in, in Boston, it was, the interior was based on the Bull and Finch, uh, which was a real bar, and then it became the Cheers Bar in Beacon Hill, uh, and that actually recently closed not too long ago. Che the real, like, the Cheers Bar in Boston, the real bar that was inspired by the show, which was inspired by Bull and Finch. Which was a small business, I take it. It was. So... Just interesting. We're talking about small businesses right now, and two straight Tartan Talks guests who do a lot of their work in the public sector, especially Bruce Matthews. Robert McNeil does some public facilities, and he also does some restorations and renovation work at private clubs. Just describe the courses that they're most intimately familiar with or involved with as the cheers of golf. And w what a great term, because how cool is it to go somewhere where quite literally everybody knows your, your name? And I that's that's big for golf. I mean, yes, you could have a golf course on a spectacular setting or with a awesome routing, but if the people there don't make you feel welcomed, especially on the public side, you're you're more than likely not going to come back. Right. I wonder how many months in a row you can go on Tartan Talks. And Tartan Talks, if folks do not listen to that, normally drops on the Superintendent Radio Network on the fourth Tuesday, or if Guy is running really far ahead, the fourth Monday of each month. Greens with Envy the first Monday, followed by Off the Course the second Tuesday, and uh, Beyond the Page on the, the second Tuesday and Off the Course the third Tuesday. But can, do you think you can go three for three or four for four or 12 for 12 this year on Tartan Talks? I mean, I could tell. Cheers of golf references. You know, when I'm doing my pre-podcast planning and communication with the guest, I guess I could tell them to refer to a course that they've worked at or are intimately involved with as the Cheers of Golf. I, I could I could pay someone off to do that. Right. You could you could get some Boston-based clubs. You could find out where Ted Danson or uh, John Ratzenberger or or Woody Harrelson, our members, sure. Uh, speaking of cheers and speaking yeah. of New England, we're going to talk about a course that you have fallen in love with. Oh, my gosh. Even though you have not visited the golf course, although you are going to visit this golf course. Once this it, summer. Once it gets nice out and once you get on the road again. Matt, why don't you just tell our listeners about the March cover story and John P. Larkin Country Club in Vermont. Right. A... Preview of sorts and also a segment packed with stuff that got left on the cutting room floor because 12,000 words worth of notes and just hours and hours of conversations with folks and even a 3,000-word package in the March issue wasn't enough to contain it all. John P. Larkin, Country Club. It's a great story, by the way. This is the last I interject before I let you take it away. <laughs> when you get the March issue, please read the story. Matt did a fabulous job with it, and Matt really put his a lot of his heart and focus into it over the last few weeks. So I stumbled on this story thanks to our State of the Industry report, where one of the questions we always ask folks is, can we follow up with you if we have more questions? And we wound up doing a little bonus story for the February issue, if folks have read it, on, hey, the turf looks pretty great. You know, a lot of courses reported for various reasons, turf looking better, uh, course in better condition in 2020 than in 2019. And I randomly, of all the folks who said, sure, you can you can reply, 
picked one in each region of the country, south, uh, west, midwest, and northeast, and tried to get a variety of public and private, tried to get a variety of 18 and 9 and more than 18, whether it's 27 or 36. And the northeast also happened to be a nine-hole public. There was this club called John P. Larkin Country Club. I called up the superintendent, this wonderful man who's on our March cover now named Bob Hingston, and just fell in love in the first 20 minutes with the story. Uh, John P. Larkin Country Club, and in New England, and especially up in Vermont, New Hampshire, even the public courses are called country clubs. This wonderful little nine hole, hard by the Connecticut River, right by what was for about 150 years the longest operable covered bridge in the country. It's been passed by a bridge in Ohio. Windsor is the birthplace of Vermont. The Constitution of Vermont was signed there in 1777, first document explicitly banning slavery in any U.S. state. And it's been in various forms of operation since 1923, so coming up on a centennial. So many incredible characters. Bob Hingston, who was the interim superintendent, was the longtime athletics director at Windsor High School, also the dean of students, and had 16 years' worth of students come through the high school, the Yellow Jackets. He got a few of them out onto the course, including one who's now a freshman at Penn State, and uh, everybody is so high on Dylan DeChamp that they think he'll be a uh, superintendent at a private club here, I don't know, probably within the next 10, 12, 14 years. He's very young. He's not even 20. Bob has an incredible history, but so do all the superintendents who have come through there. The new superintendent, a guy named Travis Williams, who's about a quarter of a century Bob's junior, is a reformed carpenter. He had worked at three different courses before that, including Claremont Country Club right across the Connecticut River, worked at two in Colorado, came back uh, because he'd gotten married. His then-wife had just gotten pregnant. He needed to make real money. He wasn't going to make the real money on the golf course, goes into carpentry, and finds out after 12 years that he is just awful at it, and he, he has to get back into golf because he would regret it forever if he didn't at least try. The superintendent before Bob Hingston, young man still only 32, named Bo Taft, who, gosh, Bo would have been maybe 27 when he took over at Larkin, uh, or JPL as it's called, grew up in Windsor, knew the course, loved the course, and came over from the Queechee Club uh, in Queechee, Vermont, to run JPL, did that for two years, and left during the early part of the 2019 season to take over what at the time was just such a plum gig, superintendent of Hanover Country Club at Dartmouth College, which unfortunately sounds like it is closed for good. So Bo is uh, basically handling all of the non-athletic fields on that entire giant Ivy League campus. Can I interrupt real quick? Of course. Isn't the Ivy League known for having really smart people? And lots of really big endowments, yeah. You would think that really smart people would be really good at business and follow trends. What are they doing keeping a golf course closed? This sounds like a whole other story. Even Yale has gotten its act together. <laughs> I know. And the, the golf course is reopened and I know. you know, fingers crossed it's on the right path. I don't know what Dartmouth is thinking. You think people that would think a lot would think this through and realize what a big year that golf 2020 had and what a asset this golf course could be financially and to the university community. And let's hope they reconsider. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. Not at all. Hanover country club, by the way, fast approaching its 125th anniversary. I believe it opened in one form or another in 1898. Uh, so a hallowed storied club and Dartmouth with an endowment of about, Eh, six billion dollars, give or take. And the superintendent They have a qualified superintendent on campus too. Right, right. Crazy. Yeah, I know. <laughs> a very good one. Uh, who would be there for the next thirty years if they took care of him. And the superintendent before Bo, uh, who was there for gosh, twenty years, eighteen of them as the superintendent, the first two as the mechanic, is a guy named Steve Ashworth, who lived about thirty five, forty minutes away on the New Hampshire side. 
he was a longtime farmer, and his dad, I guess, was would have been about, mm, gosh, maybe 75. Dad decided to retire from the family farm. Steve said, well, I'm not done, because he was only in his late 30s, early 40s at the time. And he decides to get into golf. He applies uh, to be the mechanic at JPL. They say, sure, come on over. And Steve winds up working the next 20 years at JPL. He will wake up for 20 years at 2 in the morning, leave the house by 2.45, get to the course by 3.30, work until about 2, maybe 3, go home, fall asleep by 7 or 7.30 and do it again. He did that for 20 years. Uh, And this story... Unfortunately, just I could not get it into the print edition, but it is so incredible. And maybe this has happened, uh, stuff like this has happened to other people. I'm sure it has in this industry. So this would have been about 2013 or 2014, and Steve Ashworth is working at the course. He's the superintendent. He's probably about 15 years into his run there as superintendent. And he's unloading a delivery of fertilizer, and he feels a bite, a sting on his arm. And he thinks nothing of it. He thinks it's probably just a wasp. I mean, for heck's sake, the Windsor High School athletics teams, as I mentioned, are the Yellow Jackets. There there are things that can sting you all around the Green Mountain State. And he thinks nothing of it. He goes home. He works the next day. He thinks nothing of it. But after a couple days, it just feels terrible. And he feels terrible. And he goes to the hospital, and he thinks he's going to get some antibiotic, some prescription, and they're going to send him home. And they, they say... Uh, Mr. Ashworth, what 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 have you been doing? You've been stung, or you've been bitten, I should say, by a black widow spider. Steve Ashworth had been walking around with a black widow bite for days. He winds up in intensive care for a week, gets transferred to Concord Hospital from Claremont Hospital, much bigger hospital, is in there for a week, and to hear him tell the story now, almost died because of this spider bite. Matt, I'm much better at reptiles than I am at insects. Yeah. What would a black widow spider be in, like, snake terms? I have no idea. I don't like snakes, and I don't like spiders. I never have. If you get bit by something and it's bothering you, go get check it out. I think that's the moral of this story. Different different breed. I mean, you talk about Steve Ashworth. He was a farmer all his life. You're used to it. You're used to getting bit and stung. You know, it's not, not, uh, not anything we do working behind computers. Um, the most amazing thing about this whole story, Steve Ashworth, who, again, is probably in his late 50s at the time. So, you know, great, great shape and, and you know, hearty person, uh, but still, you know, late 50s, gets discharged from the hospital after a week on a Sunday. He's back working at JPL on Tuesday. And my question to him was, why did you not go back on Monday? He's like, I don't know. I probably could have. Um, and then the cast of characters who are around JPL, John P. Larkin Country Club in Windsor, Vermont, the nicknames are great. There's Grizzy, Don Griswold, who uh, actually is basically the current mechanic. Uh, he is also a member. They basically give him his membership in exchange for working on any piece of equipment. He's revered there. There's another great nicknamed Jaco, uh, Jacques who is this retired arborist, and as you can tell from Jacques, he is uh, from far north, north Quebec, and Grizzy, Jaco, Bob Hingston is Hinger, his son Ryan, who is the clubhouse manager, came back from six years, six winters working in the ski industry, a little farther outside Windsor, is also Hinger. Uh, There's a Smitty, there are some other great nicknames, the most amazing person, Unfortunately, not able to talk with her. She's almost 87. She suffered a stroke last year, and that is Grizzy's mother, Maxine, who was the bartender and also the clubhouse manager and kind of the Jill of all trades for basically 30 years. Uh, and she she really ran the club uh, and is just this revered character. John P. Larkin Country Club, I fell in love with this course and all I did was talk with people and look at photos. I am so excited to get up there, whether it's June or July, need to get there on a Thursday night uh, when a lot of the members play and it's a, a giant party, this beautiful little 
nine-hole course. You can see Green Mountains. You can see the Connecticut River. It seems like an idyllic, perfect place, and I am so excited to get up there. Maybe you'll come with me, Guy. Hopefully it's smoother than the trip I had to visit the course I'm about to talk about. So tell me about the Vineyards Golf Course, and and before you get into the golf course, tell me how you found out about the Vineyards Golf Course. One of the things we frequently get are, are story pitches. We get publicists sending us story pitches. We get marketing people sending us story pitches. We get sometimes readers sending us story pitches. People that know our readers sometimes send us story pitches, and some of them are legit, and some of them just aren't a good fit. I'll leave it at that. We received one earlier this winter from a public relations agency about a golf course that was featured in a show, and I had honestly had never heard of the golf course, which is surprising. I'd never heard of the TV show, which isn't that surprising Not because it's been pretty – like we've documented, I just don't do a lot. Well, I watch a lot of TV besides golf and college football. Well, anyway, uh, you know, click on the link in the pitch that we received, and it, it's about this show called Small Business Revolution that's on Amazon Prime and Hulu. I knew that I had Amazon Prime. I had no idea that when you, you are a member or subscriber or whatever of Amazon Prime that you got all this content. I thought it was just a way to get your packages quicker. I didn't realize that there was a, a media element to it, too. So I— I checked the show out, and the reason we got the pitch was because there was a golf course featured on the show. So season five of Small Business Revolution, which is a show that is produced by Deluxe, which is a marketing firm, hmm. features uh, small businesses in, in small towns. And this is the fifth season, and they do a national search to pick the town that's involved. And they got more than a million votes to determine who was going to be on season five, and there were 30,000 small towns nominated. The town that won was called Fredonia, New York. And do you know where Fredonia, New York is, Matt? It's not too far from us. It's it's probably not too far northeast of Erie, really, right? It's pretty close to the Pennsylvania-New York border. It's between Erie, Pennsylvania, and Buffalo. Yeah. So as everyone just saw what the Buffalo Bills being in the AFC title game, that when Western New York gets behind something— it's pretty rabid. Well, Western New York got behind Fredonia being involved in this TV show, <laughs> and lo and behold, it was the city that it selected. And the season profiled seven small businesses, seven episodes in Fredonia, and one of them was called the Vineyards Golf Course. It was the sixth episode of the season. So I ended up watching the episode, which for me to watch a TV show, it, it, it really has to be something compelling. It's a time commitment for you. Yes. And I watched it and then I got right back to the publicist that sent us the email saying, yes, we would be interested in this story. So the Vineyards Golf Course is a public facility, 18 holes in Fredonia, New York, the community's only public 18-hole golf course. It is owned by a woman named Debbie Mancuso. And Debbie, this is a wild story. So Debbie was, is a bartender and manager of a local establishment in that part of New York, and she bought nine holes of the golf course in 2017. But this is where it really gets messed up. So the Vineyards Golf Course used to be called Hillview. It was established in the 1930s by the Porter family. The family had operated it as an 18-hole golf course until the early 2000s. Well... Guess what happens? There's a family dispute, and a road intersects the golf course. So one side of the family operated nine holes on one side of the road, and another part of the family operated nine holes on the other side of the road. So they were competing businesses. Well, Debbie bought nine of those holes in 2017. No experience in the golf industry, just a, a woman that had a busy job that enjoys golf, wanted to do something to protect this golf course so that the, the family that was having troubles op operating the course on the other side of the road didn't buy it or so that it would remain a nine-hole golf course at least. Probably loves Fredonia too. Yeah, oh, her passion for this community. And Fredonia is a, a, a town of 10,000 people, very prideful place. Everybody you know, feels a connection to the community. Everybody knows somebody, that type of place. Everybody when I was up there had Buffalo Bills 
stuff on, even though it was a few weeks after the Bills had lost in the AFC title game. So Debbie buys this and knows nothing about the golf business. And I asked her, I go, well, you buy the course. You're happy you have it. You're going you're to save at least nine of the holes here. What's the first thing you do? She went to Home Depot. And she goes to Home Depot because she knew that she, she's also a landlord out there and she needs to get a lot of windows and doors and other things for the properties that she owns. And the, the manager of the home and door department at the Dunkirk Home Depot, Jason Goss, is an avid golfer. So Debbie started going to Home Depot or when she, she, she had to go there a lot for, for her properties. She started trying to recruit Jason to come and operate the golf course. Jason loves golf. His, his dad was a big in the golf community up there. There's even a memorial tournament named after, his, after Jason's dad. Debbie plays in it every year. It's a really big social event up there in this community. Well, after a few attempts, Debbie gets Jason to come on and manage the golf course. Jason's, besides being an avid golfer, has no experience running a golf course. And then this is where it gets crazy. So they're a few months in, and basically Debbie's objective became to put the golf course on the other side of the road, out of business, which had fallen into disrepair. Well, lo and behold, a few months after that, she gets the opportunity to buy that golf course. So... She now owns the 18 holes. The course that she originally bought was in decent condition. It was playable when she bought it. Yeah, nine holes that had been managed by somebody in Florida that had just basically become a, a disgrace. So she has to put the other nine holes back together now mm. to make this an 18-hole golf course. And they do that. So 2019, it get, it's getting in better condition. And then they get picked to be on this TV show in 2020 – uh, documenting, you know, their situation as a small business in Fredonia, New York, and they thought the TV show was going to be one thing, and then COVID nineteen happened, so mm -hmm. they have to do all their work with the host Amanda Brinkman, who is a marketing guru. She's high energy. Uh, they were able to get one visit into the course before COVID nineteen really slowed things down, and then I've never heard of this guy, but I guess he's big in the um, the TV flipping houses and homes sector. His name's Ty Pennington. Have you heard of him? I feel like I know the name, so, but I avoid those shows. So he's involved in helping these small businesses out in Fredonia. And the other businesses included an auto detailing shop, a hair salon, a floral studio, a pizza joint, and a literacy volunteers organization. So those are inside spaces. Pretty easy to do some quick flipping on, on a budget. Well, really had no idea what to do with the golf course. It's a different type of business that had never been featured mm -hmm. on this show. And they eventually... Uh, help Debbie and Jason build a pool barn so they can host events. Hmm. Well, you know, the, the whole golf business got like every industry got obviously flipped upside down in 2020. So they thought they were going to have this show and help Debbie and Jason market their golf course to, to get more events, to get more pro shop revenue, to get more food and beverage revenue. And they, they had none of that besides the, the golf course in 2020. So I went up and uh, spent an afternoon with Debbie and Jason and talked to them, and it was going to be about being on a TV show, but it really got flipped around once I started hearing the, the ownership changes and what they had to do to get the, the course back into play. Uh, getting there was pretty interesting, Matt, because guess what your stubborn editor-in-chief did just to, to go up there on the day he was supposed to go up there? Well, I know what you did because it's supposed to be about, what, about a two-and-a-half-hour drive each way? Is that right? And you were in the car that day how many hours because of snowstorms? Probably about eight. Should have been five. You made it eight. It was interesting, but we spent a wonderful afternoon with Debbie and Jason. Of course, snow blanketed the golf course, but I got a sense of what their clubhouse is like, and it's a really cool, rustic-looking building. We actually had a fireside chat. They had one of those like fireplaces that you plug in in there, and we sat there and talked for a few hours about everything they'd been through. A true fireside and chat. And this is a true small business when they had to uh, – get the nine holes that were in disrepair back into some type of playable condition. They got farmer farmers to come and lend their tractors and they, they were bailing hay and they, you know, Jason had some of his uh, friends who were unfortunately unemployed at the time in 2019, come and help, help with the golf course. And then they're getting it into better and better condition. And it, it's really fascinating, but yeah, I, I decided because I had a, a standing meeting invite with them. I, when I say I'm going to be somewhere, I find a way to get there. So I drove, if you're familiar with where we're at, Interstate 90, you know, through Erie, Pennsylvania. So I will say that 
two places you probably don't want to travel through in the winter, although they're awesome places. It seems like whenever you go through these two places in the Great Lakes region in the winter, it always seems to be snowing when you go through them and hard, even when it's not snowing in the areas around them are Erie, Pennsylvania, which I had to drive through to get to Fredonia. And if you're going in the other, other direction, South Bend, Indiana, it always seems like it's mm. snowing there when you're driving on Interstate 8090. But Made it to Fredonia. I, I walked the streets. There were like six inches of snow. I visited some of the other small businesses that were featured on the show. I wanted to get a sense for the place of where this golf course is and how it fits into into the community and mm-hmm. what, what Debbie and Jason are trying to do. So I thought it was important for me to go there and put some – I literally had boots on that day because it was, it was snowing so much. So boots on the ground, and they, they had banners for small business revolution – all over the town. Like I said, I visited um, some of the other places that were featured on the show, or I didn't necessarily go inside them, but I walked by them just to get a sense for what they were like and uh, just had this wonderful comp- conversation with Debbie and Jason. And this is going to likely appear in our May issue. And I ended up watching the other six episodes in that season of the show. So to get ready for the trip, you know, Matt and I are both research. Uh, junkies. I, I think we both believe that you can never be too prepared for an interview or or a, a meeting or a story. So Legwork. the day before I went to Fredonia, I watched the other six episodes in that season to get a sense of how the Vineyards Golf Course fit into this. And it really is a, a, a true small business that uh, was going to face some gigantic challenges last year. It was going to face challenges whether COVID-19 happened or not, just because of everything Debbie and Jason have had to do to get this golf course back into playable condition but it it ended up having a a wonderful year they were busy you know despite the events being canceled they made that up up for that and revenue and uh the show basically didn't focus on the the golf course it focused more on on the pro shop side of things because that's what Mm. deluxe and the marketing people know more you know the actual physical part of golf isn't isn't their business but the marketing the marketing and trying to help small business present present themselves better is what what the deluxe which does the show focuses on but it was a fascinating day and uh you know i hope to get back there when there isn't snow like i said it's the only 18 hole golf course in fredonia new york a city of about ten thousand people and it just does a tremendous service to those people by uh being a playable golf course and who knows where this would be if debbie didn't step in and and buy nine holes and then buy the nine holes that really needed a new owner so well nine nine would probably not be a golf course anymore it sounds like and i don't know if it would be on its way to being can you imagine that though like it used to be an 18 hole golf course family dispute got broken up two competing nine hole golf courses on the other side of the road that used to be the same golf course Pretty wild stuff up there in Fredonia. I look forward to, because I've heard the stories, but I look forward to reading the story as well. And now is as good a time as any just to say, if if folks read the magazine, you know that we write about and talk with folks at all sorts of golf courses and golf facilities, whether you have 18 holes or 36 holes or 108 holes or 180 holes, whether you are a $3 million a year budget or a $250,000 a year budget. And so if you have a small business story like this, give us a call. Send us an email. Guys available at G-C-I-P-R-I-A-N-O at G-I-E dot net. I'm at M-L-A-W-E-L-L at G-I-E dot net. Send your story ideas. We at least want to talk with you. We really pride ourselves in being the cheers of golf industry publications. Where everybody knows your name. And, and what's fascinating is this March issue that's coming up. You know, on the cover, we have John P. Larkin Country Club, which very few of our readers have probably ever heard of. But we also have a profile on Oak Hill Country Club. So we really do try to co- cover golf courses in different situations, in different regions, and at different price points. And we, we believe it's important just not to tell stories of the, the super high-end major championship golf courses. We believe that we should t- tell stories of golf courses that will never reach that level, but we also do like to tell the stories of the super high-end major championship golf courses because we know that there's a fascination with those. And for us, it's really about finding that that balance, right? You don't want all Ted Danson's in your bars, you want you want a uh, Ted Danson and a what was his name Woody Harrelson a Kirstie Alley well, 
here's my pop culture. <laughs> you're naming it, you're naming the actors, which is, well, what, which is good. What are their names? We want we want all sorts of different people there's involved Cliff, in this magazine. There's Norm. There's Woody. Obviously, there's there's there was Diane for five years. Uh, Frazier. So yeah, all all sorts of people. Yeah, what you said, Matt. There we go. I love Cheers. My four year old loves Cheers. Uh, it's an appropriate show for a four year old. Don't judge me. I don't think I had watched a TV show between Cheers and Small Business Revolution. <laughs> Although I, I probably The Office, but that's a story for a different day. Two two really quick fun facts, and then I've got one more question for you guys. Speaking of Cheers, if you love Cheers, next year, September 1982, is the 40th anniversary of the premiere of Cheers. I imagine there will be lots of 40th anniversary retrospectives planned for next summer and early fall. And Guy drove on I-90, as we tend to actually drive a lot on I-90, or I do, to get home. Interstate 90 is actually the longest interstate in the United States. Its western terminus is Seattle, and I'm sensing an unplanned theme to this episode. Its eastern terminus is Boston, Mass. Anything else from the Vineyards Golf Club in Fredonia, New York, that you want to bring up, or are we saving the rest for the May Magazine story? We will save the rest for the story. That is a weak cliffhanger, but a cliffhanger nonetheless. Let's wrap up this 24th edition of Greens with Envy. Guy, you want to highlight the fast start to 2021. And what folks forget, last year, before the pandemic, we we remember all the huge numbers. Rounds played up almost 14% over the course of the year. And month after month, equipment sales were up and rounds were up. And as you mentioned earlier, half a million new golfers net over 2019 but january and even february were ticking upwards even before the pandemic which makes this even more impressive january 2021 rounds up how much over january 2020 according to golf data tech 21.4 percent so 18.6 percent with public courses 29.1 percent with wow. private courses, so very fast start. And one state in particular really jumped at, out at me when I looked at the numbers, the state of Washington, which if you don't know Washington, people think it's a snow-covered place in the winter, and it's far from that. It's it's actually the type of place where you can get 50, 60-degree days pretty frequently in, in January and February. The state of Washington had 141.6% more golf played in January 2021 compared to January 2020. And again, a lot of this is weather dependent, but a lot of this is just folks wanting to go out and play. We're already seeing it here in Northeast Ohio. We're not quite playable yet. The turf is still pretty soggy from the snow melt, from the big storm that I drove through two weeks ago that I probably shouldn't have driven through to go get a cool story. But anyway, I was at the range this past weekend, Saturday and Sunday at a Cleveland Metro Parks facility. And Basically, all the bays were f- filled. Hmm. Now, you you also went to the range four days in a row. Yes. Yeah. I got new irons. <laughs> Speaking of new irons, we got some other data from Golf Data Tech, which is very encouraging. I, I saw this. You blew this up very big so you could read it from a distance. This is another big number. Golf equipment sales in January 2021 were 43% higher than January 2020. And you know what piece of equipment? led that had the biggest year-over-year sales increase golf bags close wedges which suggests that's not that, close Those do completely different things well okay, you gotta wedges, put you gotta wedges, put wedges okay. in golf bags right yeah. you gotta you, you need a place to put them but wedges were up big that 60 percent january 2021 increase over january 2020 in the purchase of wedges which means that golfers maybe finally mm-hmm. be beginning to understand that the bulkier scoring happens inside 100 yards. We're not gonna we're not gonna spend half our money on on the driver. And speaking of irons, so irons, which in January I purchased a new set, 57 percent sales increase in January 2021 compared to January 2020, and bags also a 57 percent increase. So bags were close. Okay. So those are encouraging numbers. What does it mean for somebody that works at a golf course? Well, hopefully, if people are spending all this money on, on golf equipment, uh, they're not going to give up the game anytime quickly. 
That is the 24th edition of Greens with Envy. Before I read the credits, Guy, anything you want to sneak in before the end of the show? Support your local golf course. Support the small businesses in the industry that we care so deeply about. Our March issue, as Guy said earlier, will be online next week. Great cover story from me about John P. Larkin Country Club in Windsor, Vermont. Guy has a feature about Oak Hill. There are lots more stories and columns that, again, will be online next week in your mailbox a little later in March. Check it out online, golfcourseindustry.com slash magazine. You can read more industry news and notes in our Fast and Firm newsletter. That's delivered every Tuesday to your inbox. If you don't get it, you can sign up online www.golfcourseindustry.com under the subscribe tab. Golf Course Industry is produced by Guy Cipriano and me, Matt Lowell. Our columnists are wonderful. Terry Buchan, Henry DeLozier, Bradley S. Klein, Tim Morgan, and Matthew Wharton. We have some fantastic regular contributors, too. You'll see some of their names in the March issue. Tyler Bloom, Trent Bouts, Lee Carr, Ron Furlong, Judd Spicer, John Torsiello, Anthony Williams, and Rick Wolfel. Our publisher is Dave Zai. Our sales gurus are Russ Warner and Andrew Hatfield. Jim Blaney designs the magazine. Hope you feel better soon, Jim. Kate McCoy makes sure everything goes where it should. Avril Braden and Christina Warner make sure you all receive the magazine. Turns out a very nice neighbor plowed a foot of snow from the driveway of Christina and Russ last month. Nice neighbor. Kelly Ant will make sure we all get paid. Kayla Dodrell handles advertising production. Irene Sweeney does more than any of us can ever imagine, let alone keep straight. Anna Kolar, Cody Minnick, Tom Baum, and Patrick Briand, and Aaron Schreider make up our IT team. Stephen Webb handles our classifieds. Our president is Chris Foster. He'll be up on the roof again before you know it, tending to his bees. Above all else, we could not do what we do without you. Thanks so much for listening. Will be alright. I never ever saw the